Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Well, good morning again. I want to introduce our guest speaker. This is Damon Schrader and... Uh, He's a part of the current cohort of the Arrow Leadership Program that I went through that just completely revolutionized my life. And so and now he's in the class that I'm working with serving as a leadership partner. And this class is really from all over the world, Mongolia, Kuwait, all over the states, North America, but he happens to live in Wheaton. And so thank, so thankful for that. Uh, he's married to Crystal, and he has, they have four children. They're all here as our guests today. And Damon, as you get to know him, will be one of the most Gentle, soft-spoken people you'll ever meet. The quiet authority. He's very gentle until you play sports with him. And then a tiger comes out. And he will crush you in sports. He's just that, that real um, heart of a champion. So I, I just hope that you'll really enjoy hearing God speak to us through him this morning. Why don't we welcome him with, with an applause. Good morning, and uh, happy Father's Day. It's a joy to be here. Um, it's a joy to be in your community and get a taste of um, all of you who I've been hearing about from Pastor Dave um, over the last few months of my arrow journey, which has been quite an amazing journey. Um, today we're going to be talking about uh, the parable of the true father. Um, if we could uh, get that on the screen, great. The parable of the true father is a different way of looking at a very familiar passage that Jesus taught, which we often hear of as, or, or we're familiar with as the parable of the prodigal son or the, the lost son. And on Father's Day, we're going to be looking at Jesus' account of the true father, who is the central figure in the story and critical for us to understand the love of the Father. Before we do that, I want to introduce you to my family. Um, There's me over here on the left, my father in the middle, my mom, my brother. Up on the top right, my sister-in-law, my sisters, my wife, Crystal, my daughter, Abby, Stephen on the left, Grace, Silas, and my niece down here in the front. Now, our stories, uh, the reason I share this picture of my family is because our stories in relation to the true father um, get all mixed up in there because our relationships with our father and our father's relationship with his father all affect how we interact with God. Excuse me a second here. And um, if I could put my whole biological family up here, there would be eight um, children on my, my, my father's side. Um, and we've got something like 35 cousins. I have 35 cousins or so. And um, one of the things that I experienced when I was about 16 years old, um, I was just coming to realize that 
I hadn't received all that I needed as, as a son. As I was coming into maturity, 16, I went to this men's conference uh, with my father at a local church nearby. And as, as we got to kind of the close of the meeting, he was actually speaking about the father's love, this particular subject. And I remember going up and feeling this great urge. I needed to go forward and receive prayer to, to know and, and understand the father's love. And as I'm standing there, and as the prayers conclude, I look to my right, and my dad is standing there. And that started some conversations with my dad, realizing that his father had not given to him in some of the ways that I was hoping that my dad would give to me. He said to me that when his, his dad, again, he's a middle kid of eight, very, uh, you know, quiet personality, and so just kind of got lost in the middle of the fa- a very loud, vibrant family. And my dad um, said that when he left for college, that was the first time that his dad had shown him any sign of physical affection. He shook his hand as he, he left for, for college. And so I realized, I began to realize that my dad was actually giving me all kinds of love out of really a deficit that he had experienced. So fast forward a few years, my oldest daughter, Abby, right here, who's now 14, she was just born. My wife and I had uh, been married about a year and a half, two years, and Abby was, um, was a newborn in our home. And I just remember holding her and just loving the fact that I was a dad, and yet one day it hit me that week. It was like, I don't know what I'm doing. How can I be a father? I, I mean, I've been working with kids for a lot of my life. Like I've done children's ministry, youth ministry, camp ministry, all kinds of things. And yet being a father, the responsibility and the weight of it hit me in a powerful way. And I just, I just really, really crumbled in the middle of that. And I remember looking out the window and seeing a squirrel and watching the squirrel as it was dancing from branch to branch, going from tree to tree. And the Lord spoke to me at that moment and said, do you see that squirrel? Do you see how I have given it the gifts to do what it's been created to do? It would be impossible for you because you're not created to do that. You are created to be a father. Be who I've made you to be. And so since then, I've been trying to live this out very imperfectly, one of the ways, fast forward a few more years, my son Silas, um, who's over here on the right side, number four, um, Crystal and I thought, okay, we're, number four is probably going to be really easygoing and just kind of calm kid. And, you know, um, our others were, were pretty vibrant, lively, lively kids. And um, Silas came along, and he's just always been an early riser. And, and you know, my wife bless her, for, for, for 10 years up to that point, she had been waking up, you know, through the night doing the nursing thing, and I was one of those dads who could just kind of sleep through all of that, and, and uh, but after Silas was weaned, of course, it was now my turn, and Silas would get up at about 4.30 every morning, 
And he was ready for the day. He's one of those kids that kind of, when he wakes up, he just pops up and he's like, all right, I'm ready for the day. Let's go. And, you know, it's completely dark. None of the neighbors are out. You know, everything's, everything's quiet. Well, I thought, okay, he was in the crib at that time because we were trying to keep him contained. And he had been crawling out of the crib, just jumping over the side, running into our room, waking me up. Well, it was, uh, I, I, I thought, I've got to get something on top of this crib. So I went out and got one of those crib tents. Anybody familiar with the crib tent? It's like this mesh vinyl thing with a, a frame that you put over on top of the bed. And so I, I thought, this is my solution. I've got Silas pinned in. And, and the next morning, boom, he was out of bed. He was waking me up. I'm like, what happened? And I went in, and he had torn apart this crib tent. He's gotten out like it was nothing. So I thought, okay, maybe it wasn't quite strong or new enough. So I got another one. Put it on, next snake. Same thing. He was up in the morning, 4.30. And I was, I was kind of getting, at that point, very short-tempered in life. I was, I was weary, beyond weary. I had bags even bigger than I have now. You know, I mean, I was really, really tired guy. And so Crystal, my wife, found me um, a couple nights later, and I was in his room, and in a former life, I was a carpenter. And I was drawing up all these plans for a roof to go on his crib made out of plywood. And and so I was, I was just, I was fixated on this idea of my son staying in bed. And here I was drawing it out. And she said, Damon, don't you know, that's a cage. <laughs> I didn't care. I just kept on going. Well, as I was continuing drawing this, uh, I noticed uh, Silas I had actually put in the crib already to contain him. And I hear this splintering noise behind me, just like a crack. And I turn around, and Silas is, has one of the spindles in his hand. He had cracked it out, and he just wiggled out through the bed. So I knew from then on I was going to need to train him to sleep and embrace this calling to get up early in the morning. And it's one of those simple lessons for me, but it's made all the difference. And I think it's one that dads face all the time, to choose to give up our own agendas and to live for others in our family. So as we, as we look at um, the Father's love and we think about how we very imperfectly manifest that Father's love in this life, um, we look at Tim Keller. Tim Keller has written a book called The Prodigal God. Maybe some of you are familiar with that book. And he, he, he takes the idea of prodigal and he defines it around, um, he applies it to the person of God in this story. He says, the definition of prodigal is recklessly extravagant, having spent everything. And obviously we usually apply that to the younger son, which was true. But he's using it here to underscore the reality that the father's love is extravagant. And much of, much of the thoughts that are coming out that I'll share this morning come from uh, Tim Keller's work on prodigal God. So Jesus, 
Uh, to give you some context, Jesus is telling the story, and his audience is twofold. He's got the sinners and tax collectors, the prostitutes, that are listening to this story. And he also has the Pharisees. They're listening as well. And he's directing primarily this story at the Pharisees. He's wanting to tell the story of the pursuing love of God. And he uses three stories, right? Right before it in Luke 15, you have the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. But he's, he's saying in this story to, that there are two kinds of equally serious lostness. There's the religious and the, there's the irreligious. They're equally alienated from the father. You've got the younger son who's selfish, kind of bent on his own appetites, the way of discovering himself, let's say. The older son who's dutiful. He's doing good works to try to earn the approval from his father. He's morally conforming to the constraints that are around him, but his heart isn't really in it. So Jesus starts the story. He says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the young son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, the approach of the younger brother to the father in Middle Eastern society, requesting his inheritance at that moment would have been completely unacceptable. Unacceptable here, unacceptable there. Normal response would have been harsh disowning of his son. Never speak to again. But he didn't. The father, at loss to himself, both economically in terms of kind of his own personal agony of seeing his son reject him. That was a sign of rejection. Father, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. That's what the son was saying. At risk to himself of just experiencing the community shame, this son of yours has gone, has left, wishes you were dead. This father is left with that. Even so, he gave the third of his uh, inheritance to the son. Um, because the, the oldest sons were given two-thirds of the inheritance, the younger sons were given one-third. That's important when we come later in the story. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven. And against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now, the cultural societal norms of that time would have required the son to come bring a dramatic apology and complete restitution for what he had done. 
But the father, who could have treated him, again, like a rejected son, I've disowned you, I will not speak to you again. He didn't, did he? He ran. Now, patriarchs at that time, I mean, we kind of run, you know, Pastor Dave, he and I have run together playing basketball and football and other things. But back then, patriarchs, they would not run. They were dignified, very um, honorable, and they would walk. And here it was, the patriarch was waiting for his son. He saw him. He ran to him, probably in public view of everyone, embraced the scandalous son, kissing, hugging, and embracing him. The son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So his son... He couldn't even get his plan out to his dad, right? He was trying to say, I'm, I just want to be your servant. But the father, as it seems, interrupts his son. He reinstates him immediately with the power and the honor given to a son of a father. He gives him a robe and a ring, great symbols of being reinstated and forgiven. They, he calls for a fattened calf. A feast of this nature would be only held once a year. So, so Keller writes this. He says, Jesus shows the father pouncing on his son in love, not only before he has a chance to clean up his life and evidence a change of heart, but even before he can recite his repentance speech. Nothing, not even abject contrition, merits the favor of God. The Father's love and acceptance are absolutely free. Now, again, this story is directed to the Pharisees. Jesus is saying, any offense against the Father will be forgiven. Any offense. And this is why I have come, Jesus is saying. I've come for the sinner. I've come for the lost. I've come that they may come back to the Father. So now we have the, the older son, Act 2. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. All these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. So the older son, now it's his turn to disgrace the father, the patriarch, who is in the celebration, the grand host of a huge celebration they hold once a year with the son who has been returned. He demands 
that his father come out to him. He refuses to go in. The father is forced to leave that, that position of host. And the elder brother insults his dad. He insults him. If you see the passage, it says, look. It's almost like saying, look you. Not esteemed father, like he would say, esteemed father. But simply look you in a, in a time and a place where deference to, to elders would be all important. This re- behavior would have been outrageous. Here's the father's response. At that point, he could have disowned his son. But he says, My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So the father is inviting the older son to come in to the party of his love. He's inviting him to experience his extravagant love. And he's saying, my son, you are my son. Everything I have is yours. You are always with me. I am always with you. The son clearly had never actually received these promises, these truths in his life. Now the story ends here, right? Jesus stops the story and there's no resolution. You don't get the, the sense that the older brother goes into the feast. He's clearly pointing at the Pharisees and leaves them hanging. Will you come into the feast? Will you celebrate the sinner who has come home, who's been rescued? Now, some of the symptoms of younger brother lostness. I think we usually think of the escape of it, pursuing vices, running off and doing wild things and wild living. But I think we can also be... um, We can also do this in secret ways, in hidden ways. We can do it through avoiding God, through just crazy busyness, through workaholism. We can avoid God and and clearly be running away in our hearts from him, even though we may be physically present. Some symptoms of older brother lostness. Fear-based living, joyless duty, not being motivated by love or for love. Our self-image based on being hardworking, moral, smart, or member of an elite group. It comes out in a sense of superiority towards others. A sense of being prideful in our good deeds more than we are disturbed and broken with remorse over our bad deeds. Now for me, where I fit in this story, I'm the oldest of four kids. I'm kind of the responsible one. Some of you can relate to firstborn kind of family issues, right? And I had, uh, my family was overseas, missionaries. Um, I grew up as a missionary kid for part of my life in Cyprus. And so we had this kind of sense of, ministry identity that was wrapped around our family. Happiness was when we were serving. 
Happiness was when we were doing something outside of our home, ministering. And my identity, I found, was formed around what I could do for God. There was somewhat of a legalistic framework. And so the success, uh, the way I felt about myself was determined by my success in ministry. That was, I felt like I needed to actually find approval with God through ministry. A couple, a couple of things that were kind of going on in my life were just this mantra for me was just try harder. When I faced challenges or when I was, when I was overwhelmed by my own sinful tendencies, it was just try harder. Just do it more. Just try harder. I had a, kind of a hidden pride. Um, people wouldn't have seen from the outside. They wouldn't say, oh, man, that guy's arrogant. But inside, what was going on inside was this sense of superiority towards others. The way that I thought, my attitudes were largely hidden, um, usually actually came out in my home. It came out in my defensiveness towards my wife, the way in which I would respond to criticism. And I found myself, when I faced challenges, um, that I was not able to love those who were in my home. I could not love with a genuine love. It was a struggle. And God wanted to deal with that for me. Tim Keller writes, Criticism from others for the older brother doesn't just hurt your feelings, it devastates you. Another description from Richard Lovelace, he says, People are no long, who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. What I was doing, and what those of you who kind of find yourself in the elder brother, um, I was trying to save myself. I was trying to achieve my own sense of worth and identity by what I did. I wasn't receiving that free gift from God. I was outside the home. I was not in the party. What's, what's crazy about the story is the elder brother's lostness is actually, uh, it's much more hidden, but it's equally as fatal. It's equally as devastating. We often compartmentalize those. What Jesus is doing is he's saying both are equally lost. Both are invited to the Father's feast. Both are invited in. Something I've thought about is the fact that maybe the younger brother left home in part because of what the son, what the older son, uh, the older brother, had, had how he had treated him. Um, we see that in, in our churches today, certainly. So we turn to another part of the story, and this is the twist kind of behind the story. This is Jesus, the true brother. So remember the three, the, the two other parables be, before it. You have the lost coin, the lost sheep, and then you have the lost son. Well, the lost son, you would think that at that point, everybody else is kind of sitting on the edge of their seats, kind of wondering, who's going to go out and find that lost son? Who's going to go do it? Whose job is it? Jesus 
was opening us up to the fact that he is the true brother. He is the one who is pursuing the lost son. He is the true brother sent by the true father. So Keller writes this. He says, by the time we get to the third story and we hear about the plight of the lost son, we are fully prepared to expect that someone will set out to search for him. No one does. It is startling, and Jesus meant it to be so. By placing the three parables so closely together, he is inviting thoughtful listeners to ask, well, who should have gone out in search for the lost son? The elder brother should have been the one. The Pharisee in the story should have been the one, been the one to go out and pursue the lost one and to bring them in. Now, the younger brother's restoration was free to him, but it came at an enormous cost to the elder brother. The father could not just forgive the younger son. Somebody had to pay. The father could not reinstate him except at the expense of the elder brother. By putting a flawed elder brother in the story, Jesus is inviting us to imagine and yearn for a true one. So remember I said at the beginning, two-thirds of the estate belonged to the older brother. A third of the estate had been squandered by the younger brother. So when the father symbolically put the robe and the ring on the younger son as he came home, he was immediately taking another third of the inheritance out of the two-thirds that was left and saying, this is yours, my son. So the cost was to the elder brother. Jesus is saying, I am that older brother. I am that one who is pursuing the true brother who will pursue you. Whatever ways you're running away, if you're running away in quiet, hidden, secret ways, I'm pursuing you. The Father has sent me. I'm not just going to a different country. I came from heaven down to earth, and I'm here. I'm pursuing you with the Father's undying, unforgettable, complete, and amazing, extravagant love. I'm here to give that to you, to rescue you. And I've paid the price. I've taken the restitution. I've paid that restitution that's required for a returning son. So Jesus, at the close of this, he gives us really three choices, not two. The religious way, the irreligious way, and the Jesus way. The true way to the Father. So those of us who are older brothers, we must respond to the Father's invitation to join the party and celebrate the Father's love. So our response is that we must turn away from the perfectionism that has marked our lives. We have to turn away from the ministry-aholic living. Um, certainly has marked my own life. Um, we need to turn away from self-promotion, either in our words or just in our attitudes and our thoughts. And we must turn away from our attempts to achieve the Father's love and his affirmation. So we have a choice. 
Jesus says, the humble are in, but the proud are out. The humble are in the feast, but the proud are outside. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So he's saying to us today, he's saying, my son, my daughter, you are mine. Everything I have is yours. So, but what about the pain that we've experienced in response to living in a fallen world with fathers who have sinned against us, either by what they've done or by what they've not done in our lives? How do we respond to that? I believe God wants to bring forgiveness and healing. And if you're in this journey and you've experienced some of that healing, he wants to bring more. It's really a lifelong journey of him bringing us ever more closer, ever more deeper into his father's love. But we have to forgive. We have to forgive our earthly fathers for what they have done against us or those things that they've not done for us. If we don't forgive, we will not be able to receive the father's love. So in a moment, we're going to pray. But I want to, um, one, one other thing um, that I want to mention here is the fact that as dads, we cannot give what we don't have. John the Baptist, he said, a man can give only what he's received from heaven. Biblical principle. But it's just life story. We can't give. And what I found in my own life, I was unable to give in a way that my kids really needed because I was trying to just try harder, try to love more, try to be more patient, live 1 Corinthians 13, right? Bootstrap it on and let's go. But God wanted to actually pour his own father's love to my own kids, sometimes even bypassing me. When our kids turn against us, when our kids say something that's very hurtful to us, when we don't feel like loving, That's when we need the Father's love to come in because His love will conquer all. So here's the question for today. Will you repent and receive the true Father's love this Father's Day? In the garden, the Father walked and talked with deep fellowship with Adam and Eve. He walked and talked and met them. It was the devil's work to tempt and to twist their sense of God's goodness and his love. That was the first temptation. We have that temptation all the time. Will we trust God's love and his goodness? The father is jealous for us. He's jealous for our hearts. He wants everything. He wants our affections. He wants our time. He wants everything to revolve around him, to orbit around him, because he knows that is the way we'll find true freedom and true wholeness. This this picture, if you can see this picture, is um, the father over here on the left welcoming the son, the younger son who's coming home. And you have the older brother on the right side 
who's standing at a distance and watching. I think each of us are invited to come today, to come and to embrace the Father, to come to Him and to receive His embrace as He seeks to love on us this Father's Day. For we, this Father's Day is a celebration of Him. It's not just a celebration of of us as men or us as fathers. We are here gathered also to celebrate His fatherhood and the beautiful love that He has to pour through us, to show to us. And so we're going to do two things today. We're going to repent first for the ways in which we have run away from God or we've tried to achieve his love. And then we're going to spend some time receiving his love as he pours out by his spirit more of his love. So let's pray. If you need to kneel, feel free to kneel. Father, we, we are humbled. We are humbled by the ways that you love us. We are humbled by the ways that you long for us to turn to you. Your invitation is clear, Father. Your arms are always open wide for us. Forgive us, God, for running away. For those of you who may fit into the younger son category, it doesn't mean that you've left your family. You could be running from God in secret ways. Today is the day to return to the Father's agape love. His love is better and richer than any of the counterfeits that you have pursued. Confess the ways now in which you have sought to escape from God. You've avoided God through busyness. Some of you have grown up in families or or faith traditions that said you need to achieve the Father's love by just trying harder. Today is the day simply to receive the Father's agape love. But you must confess the ways that you have tried to save yourself instead of turning fully to Jesus to do this. Confess now perfectionism, ministry alcoholicism, self-promotion, the ways that you've tried to achieve the Father's love. Come to him now. Father, I just pray for your washing, your cleansing to flow freely, God. That you would come and that you would move. That you would wash away, Lord, the residue of sin you would wash away those things that have been locked away, hidden in secret. The ways in which we as people have been running away from you. Lord, I pray that you would unlock and open up those ways in which we have found our identity in what we do, not in your love. Forgive us, God, and move freely to wash and cleanse anew. Now, the way that we move from lostness, our lostness, um, and receive the Father's love is for us um, to open ourselves up, to 
receive his love. So would you stand now? Just open your hands up to him with your eyes closed. And perhaps um, one of you or more uh, never tasted the Father's love. You've never been rescued by Jesus. I invite you to receive his love today. For those of you who are still in a place of needing to to deal with some stuff, you're not ready. You may still be running in your heart. I just encourage you to, to spend time talking with a pastor or counselor and to address those issues. But I believe that each one of us, God wants to pour in his love today. So open your hands and your hearts. And Father, I just pray in the name of Jesus that you would come and that you would pour forth freely. You would pour your Father's love freely into each heart here. In the ways that they hear and know and see, the rhythms of the Father's love, the words of the Father's love, the pictures and the songs. Lord, speak those. Speak those forth and fill every heart that's longing, that has been pursuing other things. God, we long for your Father's love to move freely. We receive today your Father's love. We turn to you. We say we want to be in the party. We long to be in the party. Free us to dance, to dwell under your waterfall of love. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.